My name is Deborah Mobies. I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and I write Whipstitch, a blog about modern sewing. This episode on the Whipstitch podcast, I'm talking a little bit about myself. Thanks for being here. I actually have two undergraduate degrees, one in English education and one in theater. And the joke I make over and over again is uh, that you can tell I always go where the money is. Um, I taught for a long time. Um, it certainly felt like even longer than it was. I loved teaching. I loved my students. Um, Atlanta is the biggest small town that you will ever visit. And so I actually run into my students pretty regularly. Uh, and it is always a delight to, to see them again um, 20 plus years later after I stopped teaching high school. I taught high school English drama and yearbook and adored the students uh, with the exception of exactly three students ever. I would have taken every one of my kids home and raised them as my own. I did not love the adults and I didn't love the system. And left teaching in order to go to graduate school. So I, I also have a master's degree and about half-ish of a PhD. My master's degree was in anthropology. My PhD was in archaeology. Technically, it was in archaeobotany. And I was great at school. <laughs> I, loved, I loved being in school. I loved doing schoolwork. Uh, in 2005, my husband and I got married and confessed to him one day in the car, here's the thing, I do not want to go back to teaching school. Um, which left me thinking like, um, what do I do? I'd never been a stay-at-home mom before. I'd never not worked. And so I told him the one thing that I can be trusted to do, like left alone to my own devices, in the house, all by myself, all day, no supervisor. The one thing that I think that I can do is sew. Outside of what I had done while procrastinating my master's thesis, I hadn't really done a lot. I'd never sold anything I'd sewn before. Um, it was really a leap into the unknown for me. And that made it exciting, but also really challenging. I'd never worked from home before. I'd never worked without a supervisor before. And for a lot of people who were learning in the last year or so what it's like to work from home for the first time, there is a level of self-directedness that is, it doesn't matter if that's like how you're built or not, you have to learn it. So it definitely took me years, literally years, to kind of on-ramp myself to where I was prepared to be my own director. I was prepared to be the person telling me when it was time to go to work and how much work needed to be done each day and setting the schedule and things like that. Um, I started out designing children's clothes and I hated it. I, I really didn't like the idea that I was tasked to guess what people were going to like. That was the most challenging part for me. Like, what sizes am I going to need? Which ones are going to sell? What fabrics? What colors? What... You know, how many ruffles? Too many ruffles? Not enough ruffles? Like, it was really difficult for me to do that. And um, I was selling my cl the clothing, the children's clothing line that I had designed. I was selling through a cooperative boutique in Atlanta. And 
the there was a back room. So you walked in off the street, Peachtree Street, one of the main streets in Atlanta, and you walked in, and there were all these amazing different artisan booths, um, some doing women's clothing, some doing jewelry, some doing housewares. And all the way at the back, there was past the checkout, there was a bathroom, and there was like a storage room. And the woman who had started this co-op, Petra, at the time decided, you know, I don't want to use this for storage because it turns into the table next to the door to the car, right? So where everybody walks by and they just like dump their stuff and that's where it goes. And she said, I want to turn it into a classroom and I would like somebody to, to teach in this classroom. And at the time it was 2007, but before the real estate bust and nobody wanted to do it. I think all of the people who were involved in the co-op at the time were were making good money and they didn't want to give that up in order to teach classes, which didn't seem as lucrative to them at the time. But I had been a school teacher and I wasn't making any money selling the children's clothes that I had designed. And I thought, well, so that's a no-brainer for me. Sure, sign me up. I'll do that. And it ended up being one of the greatest professional moves I have ever made one of those serendipitous flukes that you couldn't have engineered even if you'd known to engineer it, and I didn't. So I started teaching classes there and eventually took over the entire space as my own and called it Whipstitch. So the Whipstitch blog, when you look at it, online and go all the way back to the very beginning the very first post on the blog was written even before i had branded and launched that space i was already teaching classes there uh, but i wasn't selling fabric or anything else and had begun to visualize what that space could be Uh, as time went on and i taught intro to sewing and intermediate sewing and then a lot of specialized sewing classes in that boutique I was approached by a publishing company which asked me to write a book Um, and I very clearly remember getting that first email and she wrote, the editor wrote and said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I remember like my gut instinct, I have this emotional memory of thinking, yeah, only every day since I was six. Yes, I have thought of writing a book before. So she and I worked together on Stitch by Stitch, which is... Funny enough, I looked it up recently. I'm going to have a sip of coffee while I say this because it feels like a humble brag. Um, I looked up Stitch by Stitch recently. It was published in 2010. At the time, no one had written a book anything like it. My vision was to create a book that was a series of projects that led you logically from skill to skill. That's how I taught when I was teaching school. That is how I taught my sewing classes. I very intentionally sat down and designed a curriculum from the ground up from scratch in a way that nobody had done before that I knew of, where, you know, we're not just going to jump in and make pajama pants and say, see, now you can sew and send people out into the world defenseless where all you can make is pajama pants and you don't even know if they fit. I really wanted to start and focus on the things that a lot of people forget they don't that you don't know how to do that naturally. I had never seen a sewing book or a sewing class that taught someone how to sew in a straight line, ever, ever. Because a lot of people who teach other people how to sew forget what it's like to not be able to do that. 
So I really wanted this sequential, incremental approach to sewing. I wrote Stitch by Stitch, and it was very successful. Um, it has sold well over 80,000 copies before it went out of print a couple of years ago. And when I looked it up on Amazon recently, um, there was one copy available, and it was $50. Um, so I I feel great about that. <laughs> That's the humble brag part is. I feel really, really proud of that book and the accomplishment that it represents. I've definitely seen other books come out since then that take a similar philosophical approach. And I'm grateful to have been part of changing the way that sewing instruction was viewed and sewing books were written. I wrote a second book a couple of years later called Stitch Savvy that I think is still a really original concept. The idea was that there are these different tracks. You know, a lot of my students would come through classes and the first question I would ask them on the very first night was, if you are new to sewing, and here you are in this intro to sewing class, start with your A, where are you now? How much experience and knowledge and information do you have? Right this second, tell me your B. Like, where is it that you want to go from here? And then tell me like your fantasy project. And I would sort of give them an example. So for example, if your A is, I just walked in the door from off the street and my sewing machine is still in the box and wait, what, it plugs in? Okay, that's your starting point. It's inarguable. That's that's where you're beginning. Um, and if your B is, and this is a real example from a real person, your B is, I want to make drapes for my apartment that is on a corner and two walls of it are windows, and my ceilings are 30 feet high, and somebody quoted me $48,000 for drapes, and all I care about is that I can learn to sew well enough to make my own drapes and not have to spend $48,000. That was a real student that I had. She took that class and disappeared, and we never saw her again. And I am itching. Like, if you're listening right now, what happened with the drapes? I want to know. That sounds like such an impossibly massive project to me. Um, but the idea in Stitch Savvy was, for a lot of people, their B is, you know, I, I'm starting at A and I'm starting at the very beginning, and I want to be able to quilt, or I want to be able to make my own clothing, or I want to sew for my home. And so Stitch Savvy has these five different tracks that you can go through, and then it's almost like a choose-your-own-adventure. Of course, that's trademarked. We could not use that phrase. Um, but you sort of choose your own path as you work your way through the book. I loved that concept. I am really grateful to have these two published books as a legacy of my philosophy of learning to sew. Both of them led into what I do now. I have two subscription clubs. One is the Murder Mystery Quilt, which is a subscription club for quilters. The other is the League of Dressmakers, which is a subscription club for garment sewing. The Murder Mystery Quilt came about when I owned a retail store in Atlanta. So in 2007, I started designing children's clothes at the boutique. By 2008, I was teaching classes there. By 2010, I published my first book and I opened a retail store on the west side in Atlanta, which if you're not from Atlanta is a more sort of art-filled part of Atlanta on the west side. Um, and that shop was open for about three years. I loved the store. It was so beautiful. 
And when we were in it, it was easy to get inspired with these exciting ideas. And one of the ideas that kept coming up to me again and again, and some of the some some of the ideas we had were silly. You know, we um, in my intro to sewing class, I would always joke that you know you're the boss, not Tony Danza, not the sewing machine. You're the boss. So I actually made a pixelated quilt of Tony Danza's face. And the plan was to hang it on the wall in the classroom with a, you know, a big caption that said, you're the boss. And you can Google on both my YouTube account and on my blog that I did, in fact, meet Tony Danza in real life. And he autographed that quilt, uh, which was a very surreal experience that came about, again, serendipitously through a customer at the shop who became a friend. And she said, he's doing a book signing and I've got tickets. You want to come? So we took this Tony Danza quilt to Tony Danza. So... There was something about the physical space of that store on the west side in Atlanta that led to these beautiful, wonderful connections and relationships. And one of the ideas that I kept having over and over again, when people would come into the shop and talk about doing a mystery quilt, I would say, mystery quilt, really? And if you're not a quilter and you're not familiar, a mystery quilt is a project where you get portions, blocks of a quilt, but you've never seen the finished design. So as you are constructing the quilt, you don't really know what the final product will look like. Somewhat like making a puzzle without having seen the box top, except that as you're putting the pieces together, you have more guidance about that one portion. And I used to make this joke. I was like, a mystery quilt? I mean, holy smokes, you're gonna make a project and you have no idea what it's gonna look like in the end? You should at least be solving crime. If it's going to be a mystery quilt, it should be a murder mystery quilt. LOLOL. And this was this idea that like, no one's doing that. That was how I really felt. It, it kept coming up though, that again and again, I kept thinking, you know, anytime I heard the phrase mystery quilt, I would think it should be a murder mystery. Come on, you guys. Now, I'm a book lover. I'm a book hoarder. Um, I love I love not just reading books, but I love physically holding a book. Um, we have multiple areas in our home that could probably be accurately characterized as libraries. Lots and lots of shelves of books. My bedside table is a bookcase. Like, I don't actually have a table next to my bed. It's a bookcase. And there are still stacks of books on the floor. So I'm a, I'm a reader anyway. I especially love caper stories and mysteries and like crime novels. I love thrillers, all of that stuff. So for me, the idea of a murder mystery quilt had an appeal on a lot of levels. When the store closed in 2013, it was Easter 2013 when it shut down and I finally drove away. And then there I was, unexpectedly sad like I knew that I would be sad to let that chapter close and and move on like that season of my life would be over but I assumed that what would happen would be I'd go back to my studio at my house and fill it out with all the things that had been living at the store and move into a new sort of I don't know creative season I think I don't know what I pictured um in point of fact I actually that was the first time that I can point in my life and say for sure I was suffering from clinical depression. It was completely undiagnosed. Um, uh, and I, so I didn't have the language to say like, this is what I'm feeling. 
So while I was home over the next two years, I, I very much felt listless and distracted and uninspired and struggled to express myself creatively. And the one idea that kept coming back to me over and over when I would sort of sit in front of my machine and just not feel it, the one idea that kept coming back again and again was this murder mystery quilt idea. Like, what if I design a quilt where the clues are hidden in the quilt blocks? Would anybody even want to do that? I, I had no way of knowing. I truly did not. So in 2015, I finally launched the idea and decided I would make it a monthly subscription club where members could get a block and a chapter every month and there would be clues hidden in the design of the quilt that would help them solve the mystery in the chapter of this murder mystery novel. So I launched it in 2015 thinking this is going to be there's no one who wants this is such a niche idea <laughs> like nobody's gonna want to do this and I ended up having 400 members right out of the gate and it has doubled every year almost every year since then and has been just this the right word is blessing just this real blessing connecting with other people and finding a supportive community of warm funny friendly creative readers We've done so many amazing things in that group. It has been absolutely one of the most rewarding professional relationships I've ever experienced. It's way more than just a fun project. It is a fun project. I love it. I get to write the story. So I'm living the dream of writing fiction, which for a former English teacher is pretty great. Um, I get to record audio versions of those chapters now, which for a former drama teacher is pretty great. Um, I get to design the patterns, which... You know, you wouldn't think that having been a yearbook advisor that I would care about that, but actually it's the same computer program that I used when I was teaching yearbook. And so it's this huge opportunity for all of the different areas of my life to dovetail together. And then I also get to sew. It is such a fun group and a fun project. And the League of Dressmakers is my other subscription club and that one came directly out of my work at the boutique and my books that I wanted to create a way for my students the ones I had worked with in person because when I was teaching at the shop I had thousands and thousands and thousands of students literally come through in person over the years that I was teaching live in Atlanta and and then I had this book stitch by stitch where you know, here I had written this book that had sold 80,000 copies based on this idea of leading people to their next project. Now that you know how to do this, why don't you try to do this? Now that you are good at putting in a zipper, let's learn to do invisible zippers. Now that you are good at, you know, making a gather, let's learn to do ruffles. Like very logical progression of skills over time, but directly applied to sewing garments. So in my head, I really wanted it to be a group that wasn't just a library, but was like superheroes, which made me think of the League of Justice, you know? Um, so I called it the League of Adventurous Dressmakers. And the idea was, you know, we're leaping first into new garment sewing skills. That was that was the, the thought that I had. Um, 
eventually I rebranded it. I had a professionally designed logo done and it, we call it the League of Dressmakers now. It's Adventurous Sewing. It is an archive of every online class I have ever taught. Um, in 2011, very soon after the shop opened, I started teaching classes online in addition to teaching them in person. Um, most of them were like six-week classes. They were sort of discreetly packaged. So you would do six weeks of uh, summer wardrobe or six weeks of sewing clothing for kids or six weeks of sewing knits without the serger. So when I launched the League of Dressmakers, it occurred to me that I could take all of this content from 10 years of shooting video and teaching online and I could add all of it to the League of Dressmakers and make it available for them. It's very cool to be able to, to create this archive of videos and projects that each one leads to the next. It really feels like this natural video-based extension of both of my books, where as you do each project, there's a suggestion for what project comes after that. As you master each technique, there are lists of different patterns that utilize that technique that are at your skill level so that you never really have to wonder what, what you should be doing after that. So, so I started out as a school teacher, I became a sewing teacher, I have moved all of that experience and time from writing my books and teaching in person and owning a retail store and funneled it completely into those two projects, those two subscription clubs. And that's where I, that's where I put all of my time day to day. So right this second I'm sitting, me and my coffee, um, mm, I am sitting in my basement studio. I'm super grateful. I used to have all of my sewing things were in the dining room off our kitchen. And we live in a, a pretty standard ranch here in Atlanta. And so you come in the front door and there's a formal living room and then there's a den. And next to the formal living room is a formal dining room that has a closing door in between the formal dining room and the kitchen. And when we first moved into this house, our basement was unfinished. And so that formal dining room was my workspace it was where my computer lived is where my sewing machine lived all of it and it was squeezed into this dining room and then all of us were squeezed around a breakfast table for every meal but that was 10 years ago and my children were a lot smaller then um over time we wanted to finish our basement uh, partly because we had water issues in the basement and they needed to be fixed anyway so we finished our basement and i moved everything down here and i discovered unexpectedly that when your workspace is right next to the heart of your home, you are always at work even when you're not at work. It's very difficult to ever turn it off. And again, I think a lot of people are working from home now who weren't working from home before. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. That that lure to always get pulled back into whatever project or deadline or whatever email is looming over you it's very strong and difficult to resist. And what I discovered was that it was actually damaging my ability to be creative because I never had, I didn't putter anymore. I never had downtime. There was no R&D of any kind. You know, there was no room in a brain that was constantly thinking, thinking, thinking about what's the next project 
to really come up with ideas that I was excited about. So moving it down to the basement was awesome. Um, it was this huge chance to, to create a space where I could turn the light off and close the door and I couldn't see it anymore. And it was just inconvenient enough that I wasn't constantly going back there. And I've had this conversation with some different pattern designers. Um, Ray from Made by Ray said the same thing when she got a studio space in Ann Arbor, Michigan and took it out of her house. She was like, it's amazing that you can close the door and you're done with work. And then you go back to the house and you know, that different parts, the different parts of your life get fed a little bit better. So I, I love having a basement studio. I'm, it has certainly been more conducive to shooting video and recording audio like I'm doing right now. Um, we do have a garden in the backyard when I was doing my graduate degree because my master's degree is in anthropology, but I knew I wanted to pursue a PhD in archaeobotany, which is the study of ancient human-plant interactions in prehistory. I became a certified master gardener with the County Extension Service here in Atlanta and have always loved houseplants, vegetables, gardening, not really into fruit trees or lawns, but, um, but I love having a vegetable garden and we put in an organic garden every spring for the last 10 years at varying levels of success. But usually on my Instagram stories, you can see what I've harvested each morning out of the garden. I'll share it and I get super, I mean, even just like a cherry tomato makes me really like super excited. So I love our garden and our family loves to travel. We are seeing as many of the United States national parks as we possibly can. Uh, we collect patches at all of them. And I just recently finally made blankets to match my children's junior ranger backpacks because they get all these junior ranger patches at all the different parks and we've been keeping them as a textile tactile memory um, like a scrapbook except something that they can take camping and snuggle up under forever of all of these trips that our family takes together I love that the travels that we do feed directly into the murder mystery quilt because we get to go to these different locations and each year the murder mystery quilt is set in a new location that we have visited. Um, and I work really intentionally to actively research all of those locations. So we've been to Jamestown, we've been to the Caribbean, we've been to Egypt, we've been all these different very cool places. I can't tell you where it's going to be next year, but uh, it's really awesome. Um, I, that has been such a, a, a joy to me is getting to take the things that I love the most and bring them back and have them feed my creativity. I don't really talk much about having a creative practice, but it's definitely something like if I was going to list here are the things that I'm going to um, drill down on in coming months, having an intentional creative practice would definitely be one of them. That's one of the things that I have identified um, as travel and live concerts were no longer an option. They were really taken off the table in 2020. And so looking for what what are the repercussions of that that I really didn't it, unless I was constantly feeding those inspirations through travel and music I didn't have a lot of opportunity to seek out the chance to feed my creativity and I became concerned that it was going to go back to where I was in 2013 when I really was struggling 
with depression and didn't know how to creative my way out of that. And so if I was going to say like a prediction, what's coming next? I would say working on having an intentional creative practice is definitely on the horizon. Um, I've made a promise to myself that I will make one garment a month for myself and then actively go through my closet and make sure that the clothing that I am making for myself either takes the place of something that's going to be donated or handed down or fills a hole that isn't already there. So I'm trying to be pretty analytical about the clothes that I make. Even the sew-alongs that the League of Dressmakers does, each quarter we do a sew-along where it's a, a video guide through a specific pattern. And I'm trying really hard to choose patterns that I think serve that same purpose for League members, where it's not redundant and it's not wasteful. It really is a mindful, intentional way of growing your skills as you sew at the same time as filling holes in your wardrobe that maybe you didn't see otherwise. So I try to be pretty thoughtful about that. I love writing whip stitch. Um, I, for a while, I wasn't writing much on the blog and I really missed it. So going back through old posts and seeing those and thinking about what content that is on the blog would be the best in an audio format has been such a fun challenge for me. Speaking of creative practice, I've really enjoyed that. Going back to some of the Great Women in Sewing series and rereading those, going back to some of the essays that I've written about sewing, more than once I've gotten comments on the blog. And again, this is going to come off like a humble brag, but I have gotten comments from other people on the blog where they've said, we like seeing the projects you make, but we really think what will last the longest is your writing. And for someone who enjoys writing, that is maybe the most generous compliment you could ever receive. It's the most generous compliment I could receive as a writer is for someone to say, we think that your writing will last after you. Um, so I love the idea that I can take some of the things that I've shared on the blog and turn them into something you can listen to. Thanks so much for listening. It is really fun to get the chance to introduce myself to you. I hope that so far you are enjoying the podcast and that you'll come back next time for another episode. Have fun sewing. This episode of the Whipstitch Podcast is brought to you by the League of Dressmakers. The League of Dressmakers is an online video sewing club complete with a library of 250 plus sewing videos, PDF downloads, exclusive patterns, and community to help you be fearless in your sewing. You can find us at League of Dressmakers. That's L-E-A-G-U-E of Dressmakers.com. <laughs>